This is the podcast by the Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by the Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for the Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at the Straits Times. It is the 14th of October, and we are back with Melissa Lowe, a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Energy Studies Institute, to discuss another key issue of interest for Singapore and the region at the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, carbon markets. Hi again, Mel. Hi. So Melissa, and you know this better than most people, uh, the Paris Agreement is a very complex document and there are probably many other issues relevant for our region in it. Uh, One of these issues revolves around carbon markets and the trade in carbon credits and whether countries can buy them to offset their emissions. All these are being codified in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. But before we go into detail about it, break it down for us. Yes, so Article 6 is one of the least accessible and complex concepts of the Paris Agreement. It should have been concluded at COP24 back in Katowice, Poland, back in 2018 with the rest of the Paris rulebook. But the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in the postponement of COP26 by a year, And this has caused further delay in finalizing the rules on how countries can reduce their emissions using the international carbon market. And to understand why Article 6 is so challenging, perhaps I should give some context. So carbon markets first came about through the Kyoto Protocol's flexibility mechanisms. The Kyoto Protocol was agreed by countries back in 1997 and came into force in 2005, I believe. Its first commitment period was for five years from 2018 to 2012. Under the Kyoto Protocol, only 37 industrialized or developed countries that were listed had quantified emissions limitation and reduction objectives or targets for short, right? And developing countries uh, did not have any binding targets whatsoever. Sorry, Mel, if I could just clarify um, that both the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement are instruments under the UNFCCC which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The key difference is that under the Kyoto Protocol, only developed countries need to set climate targets and developing countries did not. But under the Paris Agreement, all countries will have to set climate targets. And this means that developing countries may now want to keep the carbon credits they generate for themselves. Is that the right understanding? Yes, Audrey, that's correct. Now that all countries under the Paris Agreement have to submit and maintain increasingly ambitious climate pledges, we know this to be called nationally determined contributions, right? So the country generating the emissions reductions could wish to claim the credits that they have generated in their host countries and not give it to the country that invested in the project. And by so doing, they achieve their own NDC. Uh, And this makes the operationalization of carbon markets under the Paris Agreement more complex because now more countries want to use market and non-market approaches to complement their domestic emissions reduction measures compared to before. In fact, uh, more than 100 countries have said so in their NDCs that they might want to use market and non-market measures to meet their targets. Uh, But what's good is that we're not starting from scratch in Glasgow. Right? And countries, uh, they, they will be using the COP25 text uh, in Madrid. Uh, they came up with it in Madrid. And the text gives a solid foundation for many of the technical issues. And so what remains uh, for conclusion in Glasgow are basically a handful of political and higher level issues to be resolved uh, before the conclusions can be forwarded 
um, to the COP presidency uh, and for the COP to be adopted. So Southeast Asia has large swathes of forests and peatlands, and Singapore uh, has also announced plans to build a carbon credit exchange. So this is highly relevant uh, as an issue for us. Uh, one key issue is about double counting of carbon credits. Uh, what does this mean exactly? Yes, uh, David, thank you very much for that question. Uh, we talked about nationally determined contributions earlier as well as in the previous episode. Now, some countries' climate pledges do not cover all of their sectors, energy, transport, forests, and so on. So this issue relates to the desire of some countries to ensure that uh, the emissions reductions from activities that were not within the scope of the climate pledges are not doubly claimed, right? And this, what this means is that the host country that is selling carbon credits from a project, let's say forestry project, to help others meet their climate targets, for example, that country cannot claim the credits that uh, helped offset its own emissions. And ideally, there should be a ledger to ensure that the credits that are used by one country are struck off. So this prevents emissions reductions from one project to be counted twice. Uh, technically, we call this corresponding adjustments. I don't really want to get into it at this point. Um, but there are some countries that argue that double counting here should be allowed um, to incorporate the non-NDC uh, or non-nationally determined contribution sectors because this maintains some incentives for countries to move towards economy-wide pledges, meaning to say, right, that over time, they should try and incorporate more sectors in their nationally determined contributions or climate pledges. And this is about progression, they say. If you disallow countries from trading credits from activities outside of the current sectoral scope of their climate pledges, then you may be reducing the incentive for countries to expand their pledges over time to cover these sectors in the future. Uh, but to address the risk of uh, a perverse incentive against moving towards economy-wide NDCs, some countries have suggested a time-bound flexibility where such adjustments will not apply to units generated outside of the climate pledges. However, concerns uh, were also raised in past meetings uh, that allowing such flexibility could, of course, undermine the integrity of the entire system. So the, I, guess, so I guess the question now is here is when it comes to really owning those uh, avoided emissions, how to stop that from being you know, double counted. So benefit for the client and benefit for the country at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's actually very difficult uh, moving forward because we don't know if countries are going to completely sell or completely buy. In fact, what I imagine happening would be some countries will buy and sell at the same time. So you really have to have this international ledger or registry to ensure that uh, whoever is buying and selling, all of that gets put down um, uh, in, in, that, in that registry. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. It's a very complex issue, as you say. So um, hopefully they can figure out a way to <laughs> avoid double accounting. But of course, um, there are other issues too, contentious issues uh, around Article 6. Maybe if you could take us through uh, some of those. Yes, I'll be happy to. Um, the second issue is on the use of units that are generated before 2020 to meet the NDC or nationally determined contribution targets. So um, some of these units were generated under the clean development mechanism, right? So this is under the Kyoto Protocol. 
And what the CDM or Clean Development Mechanism uh, does or did was that it allows a country with emissions targets, and these were, of course, in the past, only developed country uh, parties, right? And when they implemented an emissions reduction project, they would be able to earn the um, certified emissions reduction credits towards meeting their targets. One certified emissions reduction credit is equivalent to one tonne of carbon dioxide. And these, as I said, can be counted towards meeting those countries' targets. A CDM project or Clean Development Mechanism project activity could be a rural electrification project that involves solar panels, or a thermal energy recovery project through the use of sewage, sludge, biomass, and bio biogas, for example. But what's important is that a CDM project must provide emissions reductions that are additional to what would otherwise have occurred. And under this topic, uh, under Article 6, many countries are supportive of the idea that some CDM activities could transition into the Paris Agreement carbon trading mechanism if they were approved by the host country and met some of these new rules as well. Um, but are they, are, what, what is the real issue, right? Um, some countries have argued that if this is allowed, then some earlier investments that were committed uh, under the CDM could actually take money away from future projects or post-2020 ambition. Um, so, so these are some of the, the key issues under the use of generators, uh, generated credits before 2020 to meet NDC targets. So Malmin, related to the Kyoto Protocol's clean development mechanism, uh, under that mechanism, uh, countries had to kind of pay a tax, right? Whenever they made a transaction through that mechanism and that money through that collected through that tax will be used to fund adaptation for developing countries. So in, under the Paris Agreement, is there such a provision as well? Uh, yes, so there is a general agreement by all countries that adaptation funding is urgently required for the most vulnerable countries, but exactly how that will become operational through Article 6 isn't fully agreed. Uh, and it should be finalised in Glasgow, COP26. So, Melissa, we know that Singapore's Minister for Sustainability and the Environment, Ms Grace Fu, has been invited to co-facilitate discussions on this contentious topic. What exactly does this facilitation entail and why Singapore? Thanks, David. The role of co-facilitators uh, is really to listen to countries and to bring forward solutions that would be able to uh, ensure the widest possible support for any outcomes. But ultimately, the solutions on any eventual deal has to come from building consensus among countries. And the hope is that through such ministerial cons consultations, um, the people who are making the decisions would have some deeper understanding on some of the key contentious issues, what would be the trade-offs and implications of any solution that might be proposed. And this, uh, these ministerial consultations have been happening uh, already uh, during this year. And the idea is that countries will be in a better position or ministers will be in a better position to reach an agreement in Glasgow. And there's a lot to do, uh, but reaching agreement, I think, will be well within grasp with support of all countries. Uh, what I do know is that there's a perception that Singapore is an honest broker at these climate talks. And it's great that uh, we've been given the opportunity over the years. But I know that uh, this role is something that we never take for granted. So, Mel, lastly, how important are Article 6 discussions in the grand scheme of things? Because I think this is a key issue that was not worked out at COP24 in Katowice. So, what if countries fail 
again to reach a consensus on this topic. Thanks, Audrey. I'll cite Kelly Kizaya uh, for this. Uh, she is a former senior climate negotiator for the European Union, and she worked on Article 6 in Paris, and she later co-chaired the Article 6 negotiations uh, at the other UN conferences. She has pointed out a very interesting thing, which is that carbon markets actually don't require Article 6 rules at all. Uh, we are already seeing an upward trend in the voluntary carbon market, and it is moving ahead in the absence of any Article 6 rules. Um, however, these rules do provide extra clarity and more integrity, as well as a pathway for what's happening in the voluntary carbon markets. Um, and there are increasingly also more emerging uh, regulated markets or compliance markets, as we call them. And all of these individual markets have to be coherent with any international rules if you want an integrated uh, global carbon market, essentially. So what this means actually is that um, there's no barrier to international uh, carbon credit transfers at all. Uh, in the absence of Article 6 rules, we know this is already happening. But what's important is that there's coordination and um, that there's clarity in terms of how um, the adjustments are made such that we avoid double counting and ensure that the credits generated are, uh, have environmental integrity. Thank you so much, Melissa. I mean, this has been a very enlightening, albeit technical discussion. And thanks for explaining all these to us. Thanks, Val. Thank you, Audrey and David, for having me. Do check out our previous Green Pulse episodes for more on carbon markets and the trade in carbon credits. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.